Lord Almighty, thank you for bringing us to your word and thank you for sweet young voices to come and help us to praise you. And thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to hear. I pray that you would cause us to hear so that we would become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. I love myself. This is a mantra for self-esteem coaches worldwide. And it's an easy sell, you see, because we all like to think of ourselves as good and lovable no matter how wretched we really are. The positive side to self-esteem is that social, social scientists and secular psychologists are able to make brilliant observations. And the observation associated with self-esteem that is good is that there is a remarkable correlation between having a positive view of yourself and good outcomes, for example, like academic success. The argument that biblical counselors have with secular psychology is not with many of the good observations that they make, but with their recommendations about what to do with those observations. Self-esteem, as popularly communicated, is fundamentally flawed because it prescribes self-love as a solution to what might be legitimately a skewed or detrimental view of oneself that will lead to self-destructive behavior like promiscuity or drug abuse or go in the opposite direction and lead to narcissistic problems like abusing others or undervaluing their input. Christianity also wants to avoid both of these errors. But instead of teaching you to think well of yourself, the Bible provides a solid understanding of human nature. Because every single human being is radically fallen and capable of almost unimaginable evil. We see it on the news every day. And on the other hand, we are created in God's image and therefore capable of the heights of glory in every sphere. In the physical sphere, think about the Olympics. In the mental sphere, think about Einstein. In the spiritual sphere, think of Paul of Tarsus. In the charitable sphere, think of Mother Teresa. The image of God in every single human being brings about enormous good, while at the same time our fallen human nature can bring terrible evil. And furthermore, God's word also provides input on how to solve either of the two errors that we talked about, either thinking too little of oneself or thinking too highly of oneself. God's word teaches that the emptied self satisfies better than the esteemed self. This idea of emptied self versus esteemed self comes directly from Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Or in the older translations, esteem others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count, count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of of men. You see, it is the emptied self that the Lord chooses to be his servant. It is the emptied self that God blesses with the ability to be a blessing to those around you. It is the emptied self that is able to look back at his or her life and find greater satisfaction than the self that is constantly seeking esteem, constantly trying to make themselves good in the world's eyes, which as we know is a floating target. And we can't get there. Today we are going to see a passage where God chooses Jesus as his representative and as his example for us and the choice is clearly based on the fact that Jesus emptied himself, as Paul describes in Philippians 2. Let me read our passage for us. In Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Do you mean to change mics? Are we good? All right. Jesus understood that forcing himself on someone else would not please God or give hope for change, which is what all of us are looking for, to those he wished to love. And because Jesus is the wisest person who ever lived, he knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that buttonholing or badgering or beleaguering someone was not, is not, nor ever will be the way to someone's heart. So then, what's the secret? What will help people change? If the nagging wife or the whining worker won't profit the environment, what will? Well, the obvious answer to this is only God can change people. And all my nagging and your nagging and everybody else's nagging won't do it. But there are attitudes and actions that you and I can display that will help us to be more effective 
tools in the master's hands. And the general phrase, one of them that the Bible uses to describe, wrap all this up into one, is the idea of being dead to self. Being dead to self is the condition where the mere fact that I don't get what I want does not surprise me or offend me and has absolutely no control over me. The mere fact that I don't get what I want doesn't surprise me, it doesn't offend me, and it has no control over me. Does anybody want to live like that? The greatest, most unique, smartest person in the history of the world was also the person who had most, who was most dead to himself. He was, as the older translations say, meek. And meek does not mean weak, but it means unassuming. It means willing to shine the spotlight on others. It means just plain being humble. Because the emptied self satisfies better than the esteemed self. Let's look more closely at our passage. The first notes in your sheet is speak up for justice. Speak up for justice. Verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Now, we talked about the first half of Matthew 12 last week, and in those verses, we saw that Jesus healed a man. And right after he healed a man, the Pharisees responded by planning to murder him. Jesus didn't have to be omniscient to understand their plans. They probably had it written all over their face. But in the face of credible death threats, Jesus went on healing people. And he just kept doing what he was doing. But then he ordered people not to make him known. And the reason is that Jesus wanted to keep his healing secret because he didn't want anyone to get the wrong idea about what he was doing. You see, Jesus is the king. But he didn't want or need anybody to make him king. You see, on more than one occasion, folks wanted to make him king by force so they wouldn't have to pay their hospital bills or to pick up the check at the local hometown buffet. But Jesus' ego was not tied to what people around him thought about him. In fact, he was dead to himself, so he'd much rather point people to the Father. Jesus emptied himself and pointed people to God, the Father, because Jesus understood that the emptied self satisfies better than the esteemed self. And we continue in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well Pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, we've read this phrase, this was to fulfill a couple of times, and it's pointing back to the fact that Jesus was doing these healings. He went around blessing people 
as opposed to going around and putting up his dukes and getting into verbal sparring with the people around him. Perhaps we should take a cue from this. Perhaps we should understand that loving people by, for example, serve Santa Maria on April 11th. That was a hint, by the way. You're supposed to catch that. Do you all catch that? Okay. Rather than fighting them is a better way to get along with them so they'll pay attention to what you have to say. So God chose him. Jesus demonstrated by his attitudes and actions how to be one who can receive God's blessings, which is what we all want to do. God with skin on showed you and me by example what it looks like to live the kind of life that God can bless. And God then chooses to bless us by choosing us to be his tools to bring about his kingdom work. And notice the key description that God, Matthew uses twice in this paragraph about how Jesus chooses to be a blessing. It says in this particular verse, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, unfortunately, speaking up for justice is something that conservative Christians spent a lot of time avoiding in the 20th century. Fortunately, that is much less true nowadays. They do, we do speak up for justice because this is what people who have an emptied self do. And in my work for the city of Santa Maria, I am very privileged to meet a lot of people running good nonprofits in town who are promoting justice. And not every one of them uses the methods that I would use, but you know what? They're in the ring, so to speak. They're speaking up for justice. They are doing the battle so that people can see what it looks like to have someone around them love them. Ought that not to be what Christians do more than anybody else? Jesus loved people and he spoke up for justice and he is calling you and I to do the same thing. I talked to these um, executive directors of various nonprofits. We recently talked to seven of them, as a matter of fact. And so far as I can tell, these people are very satisfied with their labor. And so far as I can tell, these are the people not paying $100 an hour to self-esteem coaches. Because these people know from experience that the emptied self satisfies better than the esteemed self. Now, I want to take a time out just for a second because I don't want you to get the wrong idea concerning this kernel of truth that we find in the husk of self, the self-esteem movement. And the kernel of truth is if you and I run around all sour-faced, well... That's not going to do us any good. That's not healthy. That's not what we need to be good citizens in this kingdom or the next. But if you and I stop looking in the mirror right after we either put our face on or take it off in the morning, we will be even better yet. 
You and I can start doing this when we speak up for justice. Who around you do you know that needs to be defended? Start where you live. Pick people who are like you and need some assistance, some help of one kind or another, and start taking steps that will make their lives better. That's exactly what Jesus did. And no doubt, if you do, if we do take this step, we're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to be asked questions that we don't know the answers to. But you know what? God is a big boy. He can handle those things. And he can help you handle them when you're willing to face them. If you and I get our eyes on Jesus and therefore off ourselves, we will find ourselves gloriously emptied. So then the question is, how do we get our eyes off ourselves? And the answer is your second blank. Die to self. Let's read verse 19. Jesus, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, I look at these verses, and my, my first reaction is to say, what? So I've got two big questions about these two verses. And the first one is, while we're reading this, we remember passages where Jesus took a whip and chased people out of the temple. We remember other passages where Jesus called the religious leaders of the time whitewashed tombs. And no, that was not a compliment. We remember passages where Jesus, in their face, got up to people and warned them of the judgment that was to come. And we see this and we think these two ideas don't fit. And the second problem I have here is that Americans have never really thought very much of people who are milk toast. And I read this and I think, um, milk toast, I don't want that. So allow me to address, address both of these concerns. Remember, we spoke a few minutes ago about this idea of being dead to self. And remember, being dead to self is the condition where the mere fact that I don't get what I want doesn't surprise me, it doesn't offend me, I don't get all bent out of shape, and it doesn't control my attitude the rest of the day because somebody at Starbucks snubbed me. The point of being dead to self is not that you're a pushover. Now stay with me because I'm about to read you a long quote from Pastor R.W. Glenn that talks about a synonym of this idea of being dead to self. And the synonym is meekness. Stay with me here. This is a good quote. In point of fact, meekness does not mean avoiding conflict or refusing to call a spade a spade just because the consequences seem undesirable. Meekness simply means never asserting itself for its own sake. Let me read that again. Meekness simply means never asserting oneself for your own sake. 
You can be meek while correcting or rebuking or admonishing, just not if you do those things as expression of one-upmanship or personal defensiveness. Jesus was no indecisive pushover, nor did he have a spirit of compromise, but Jesus was radically meek. When you go through the New Testament, like the passages I just alluded to a few minutes ago, where Jesus was forcing, was forceful, he was forceful not to defend himself and certainly not to promote himself, push himself on anyone else. When Jesus acted forcefully, it was always to defend God's honor or to warn others of the folly that they were in so that they could repent. And when we read verses 19 and 20, we remember that Jesus did not force himself on others. And I'll give you a comparison so you can see this. The primary reason Jesus spoke in parables. Do you ever read the New Testament? And you, you read one of the parables, you read one of the parables, and you think, what was that all about? Jesus spoke in parables so that those who did not want to hear what Jesus was talking about could walk away and feel justified. Someone might say, a bruised reed he will not break? That's crazy. Come on, Judah, we got work to do. But for those who had the spirit, those who had the ears to hear, they would, they would hear that funny thing and say, wait a minute, what does this mean? And they would go to Jesus and they would find out what it means. And we have people today who read God's word and it strikes us and we think, wow, what could this mean? And so we ask godly men and women who are around us, who have walked with him longer than we have. And we say, what do you make out of this? That is always a good question. Jesus indicates exactly what I'm saying. He says in Matthew 13, 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. They see Jesus standing there. They hear what he's saying, but, oh, that's, that's too much. I don't get it. I'm leaving. Because... Jesus has emptied himself. He is meek. And so if you don't want to hear what he has to say, if you want to walk away, he gives you, so to speak, a built-in excuse. You don't have to have ears that want to hear. The second thing this means is that Jesus gives you and me the freedom to fail. Oh man, have you ever said something to someone and you realized right now you have a foot-shaped mouth? Right? Happens to me every day. What do I mean by the fact that Jesus gives you and me the freedom to fail? I mean that you and I can go and tell people about what the Lord is doing in our lives and not worry. It doesn't depend on me. 
Even Jesus, the smartest, wisest, most capable teacher in the history of the world, could not convince everybody. And Jesus certainly, Jesus simply would not strong-arm people. He would appeal to them. He would cry out to them. He would beg them to listen to him, but he would not force himself on people against our will. You and I don't need to boost our self-esteem by demanding our rights, by fighting for the last piece of C's candy, although sometimes, you know, you and I can live ever so much happier because you empty yourself and you just enjoy life more. Is your name in lights? Do you get all the credit for all the things that you've done? No. But you can go home and sleep at night. So Jesus emptied himself. And listen to how ironic this is. The one person in the universe who could legitimately claim that it really was all about him made it not about him. And those who are more interested in their own good, however they define good for themselves, could simply walk away and not hear. You have that choice tonight as well. You can hear the words of the Lord speaking to you about whatever it is. And, and very likely, by the way, I think that conversation is happening inside your head, not necessarily even the words I'm speaking. And you can walk away. You don't have to hear. Jesus will not force himself on you. But should you remember that your Lord loves you and he wants to be a part of your life and he wants you to be more importantly a part of his life, then you will have an ear and you'll say, I don't get that. I, I don't understand it, but I want to know. And that's when the Lord will be able to speak to you. The emptied self satisfies better than the esteemed self. So how do we die to ourselves? First and foremost, don't make the conversations you have about Jesus about you. Don't take offense when people reject Christ or reject you because of Christ. Don't be surprised and don't be offended. It's not about you. Don't be controlled by their indifference or their hostility. It won't do you any good, and it won't do them any good. So let it go, and don't sing Disney songs. Instead, simply present Jesus. Simply speak about Jesus. Simply tell yourself and tell others about what Jesus has done for you and through you and on you and to you. And know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And our last point, as we end this part, pour yourself out for hope. I love this verse. 
It looks at first just like a tack on, just like something to end, but it's more, so much more than that. And in his name, in Jesus' name, the Gentiles will hope. We're talking about Jews here. They hate Gentiles. Jews hate them. Think of any racial problems we have and then multiply that by 10 and you got what the Jews thought about Gentiles. And now Isaiah is talking about Gentiles are going to hope in our Messiah. But let me say this. If it is true that people don't care what you know until they know that you care, it is even more true that if someone sees you dead to yourself, if someone sees you dead to asserting your rights, if they see you dead to defending yourself, dead to other people's opinions of you, dead to your own opinions of you, if someone sees you living that kind of a radical, crazy life, they are going to know where to find hope. Because in this world, we can't find hope. Turn on the news. You're going to find any hope on the news? Turn to your video games or your searching on Facebook. Do we really find hope there? Turn to your health and the fact that you're so strong. <clears throat> any hope there? Not much. But you do this, you live like you don't need to defend yourself, and the people around you will see that person has something I want. And by the way, why, why should you defend yourself anyways? Never defend yourself. Your friends don't need it, and your enemies won't believe it. So then we come to the fundamental question, why should people get up early on Sunday morning and miss the game? If it's so that they can go to some weird building that is used only for weddings and funerals, and less and less so nowadays, so that they can sing songs that they don't know the words to and pray to a God that they're really not sure is there at all, well, then you might as well forget about it. Sleep in and watch the game. On the other hand, if they see someone who is radically invaded by the glory of God, who lives so very differently from the people that around them, and they seem happy about it. If they see someone who's not hooked on congratulating themselves for every perceived victory, real or not, if they find a person whose ego is not devastated by being snubbed, then they'll want to know why, and you will be able to tell them in a very convincing manner that the, esteemed, that the emptied self satisfies better than the esteemed self. So how can Christians view themselves rightly? How can we develop an accurate view of ourselves so that we can achieve academic success, so that we can be good neighbors? How can we live according to all that is good about the observations of social scientists and secular psychologists? Number one, don't worry about it. There is no right answer to a wrong question. Instead, look 
to the promises of God for you in Christ and trust them. You will find yourself emptied of all that would hold you back and you will be far more satisfied than if you had all the tea in China. And secondly, look at the people around you. Speak up against the injustice around you. Pour yourself out for those who are around you. Live so that others can see that there is hope. But that hope is not found on the road that leads away from Jesus. Die to yourself in the sense that you are no longer dependent upon others for approval. Then you will certainly discover that truly the emptied self satisfies better than the esteemed self. Let me pray for us as we prepare for communion. Lord Almighty, we come once again to your table. And we ask that you would indeed meet us here. God, enable us to find you. And as we learned this morning that we can die like Jesus, that we can die to ourselves, that we can learn to esteem you better than all of the toys that we want. God, give us grace. And as we prepare to eat at your table, God, I pray that you would enable us to meet you here so that we will be the men and women that you have created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.